So maybe by then I'll have more seven dollar chairs. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Wow. That's a that's a very big incentive. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special collab episode between the Student Spotlight and Whisk Talks podcast, where we explore the highs and lows of student life, as well as highlight stories of successful women in different industries with the Women in Science and Computing Club at U of T. I'm Yasmin, a second-year psychology computer science student, and today I'm co-hosting with Vinize, a third-year stats and computer science student and president of the Women in Science and Computing team. Right now, we are joined by a very, very, very special guest. Please welcome the new Vice President of the University of Toronto and Principal of UTM, Dr. Alexandra Gillespie, aka Alex, because we got permission, guys. We're not being disrespectful. (laughs) So Dr. Gillespie is also an internationally renowned researcher, published author, and director of the U of T Old Books New Science Lab. She's won many awards in recognition of her outstanding teaching and is a Rhodes Scholar. Today, we'll get to know her a little bit better as we discuss being a female in academia, succeeding in leadership roles, as well as diversity and inclusion. Please welcome Dr. Gillespie. So how's it going, Dr. Gillespie, or Alex, rather? Because you're transitioning into a pretty high position right now, and it's a very strange situation with the pandemic. Um, it is. I think it would have been a... Um would have been a challenging time anyway. One of the ways that I measure the transition is that I went from managing a budget of about 5 million to a budget of 400 million in the space of a couple of days. Wow. Um, And, um, you know, that's a jump, but it's a jump that I was really lucky to do with an extraordinary team um, with me. Uh, The UTM is, is a place that has been run for a number of years now by a really amazing group of people. And they were there to they were there to show me the ropes and support me. And so, actually, even though it was already um, challenging, and yeah, you're right, I'm doing it in a pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. It it hasn't hasn't been as challenging, perhaps, as I expected, or perhaps I could say it has been really challenging, but it's also been very rewarding. And I felt extraordinarily supported and lucky in the transition. That's so awesome to hear, honestly. Well, I think perhaps now's the moment for me to shout out a couple of other women in leadership roles. Um, the Dean at UTM, Amrita Danier, um, and my mm-hmm. chief, exec, uh, chief Administrative Officer, Seher Fazilat, um, both of whom um, are in, the first, in their first terms as de- Dean and CAO. And um, well, we have some, there are lots of other amazing people at UTM, but, um, but those two women have, have held me up particularly, and I'm especially grateful to them. So how has it been being a female in academia and, and as you progress through higher leadership? Um, well, I think, again, the thing I'd like to point to, first of all, is the way that before you can go into any kind of leadership role, you have to imagine that it's possible to be in a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to see people ahead of you, right? Representation matters. And I think probably when I first arrived at the University of Toronto, I'm not sure that I could see my way to leadership positions. I was pretty focused mm. at that early stage on just being an assistant professor focusing on my research, getting tenure, focusing on my students, trying to do a good job. So to be fair, I wasn't looking around that much. But when I did, um, I could see that, for example, there'd never been a female chair of the Department of English at the University of Toronto, the the tri-campus Department of English at the University of Toronto. There still hasn't been a female chair Mm. of that department. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see that there were not a lot of women in the really senior roles at the University of Toronto. So it wasn't really a, a path that I could think about. And yet leadership has always been something that I've really enjoyed. I like, um, well, I mean, you know, the, the thing that um, people say about women like me when we're girls, right, is we're really bossy. And then mm-hmm. what Beyonce has taught us to say is, no, no, we're the boss. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Queen Bay. Um, so that's really <laughs> embarrassing that I said that because I'm a, I'm a middle-aged woman. I'm a white woman. I, sh- I shouldn't really. But anyway, I did it. There we are. It's too late. Amazing. It's on a podcast. It's going out to the world. <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah. So um, I've always really enjoyed organizing people, bringing teams together, energizing other people, directing other people to do things that they're better at doing than I am. And But I still want to see them getting done because I think they're exciting things to do. Like that, I love doing that kind of work. And I always <laughs> have. And when I was younger, 
So in my teens, my late teens, my early 20s, I did lots of work in the voluntary sector, nonprofit sector, those kinds of areas. Um, I did lots of leadership type work. That's kind of what led me to my my auspicious road scholarship, which perhaps I could mm. talk about later. And leadership was definitely something that was was always there as something I knew I was interested in, um, that, that those kinds of roles. But I'm not sure when I first arrived at U of T, I could see a way to it. And actually, when I think about my early years at U of T, um, there were actually some um, incidents that made me feel that if I wanted to take a leadership role, even in my own discipline of English literary studies, medieval studies, I probably had to look outside of the University of Toronto. Um, very early on, I started mm-hmm. working with the Mellon Foundation and actually with colleagues at Stanford University on some project work um, where I felt that it was possible for me to be a little bit more, for want of a better term, entrepreneurial in my work. Um, this is work I was doing in mm. the space that gets called the digital humanities. It was around manuscript digitization and the development of um, both new software to allow scholars to work with digitized heritage materials in new ways, but also new kinds of um, really API ecosystems. So new kinds of sort of data, sort of frameworks for using digitized mm-hmm. data in more interoperable ways so that you can kind of operate across different data collections and the problem of data interoperability and getting consistent formats for data and making sure that, you know, your machine or your archive can work with my data and so on. That's still a problem for just about every field, you know, it's still a huge problem. And we were, we were in that space. Mm -hmm. And I felt like um, for whatever reason, those two institutions, Mellon and, and Stanford at that time, were places where uh, my gender was uh, in my youth. I was still pretty young when I arrived at the University of Toronto. I just turned 30, which right. is not its not that old. Um, at the time, I felt very ancient, but I now recognise <laughs> it wasn't that old, um, that, that these things were not um, obstacles to my being given a chance to show what I could do. Um, and I, I'm not sure I felt that here at U of T. There were, of course, people at U of T who did give me all sorts of opportunities, but um, but there were also significant obstacles here. So I say all those things, but then I would like to point to the fact that something shifted. And um, mm. I'd actually like to point to that for me being, I was tenured in 2008, um, and, and I, at that point I still didn't feel, I could, still couldn't see those pathways. But around about uh, 2010, um, I went into a, a long extended period of leave, which was a combination of research leaves, thanks to, again, the Mellon Foundation that was buying me out of some of my teaching, but also to parental leaves, because this was the period in which I had kids. I had right. uh, a son and then I had twins. And I can tell you that doing that leads to lots of leave, <laughs> lots of different kinds of leave, medical leaves and parental mm. leaves. And when I came back from that, and I didn't really come back sort of full-time until 2013-14 really, I felt like there'd been a shift at this institution at U of T. Um, I don't think it's coincidental mm-hmm. that that coincides with um, the, um, the tenure of Provost Cheryl Regeer. And a lot of this, the a moment where you saw the stepping up of a lot of other female leaders around U of T who really are committed to equity, diversity and inclusion, not always in super loud ways, but in really insistent, kind of relentless ways, quite often in the background. And, and I, could, I could feel that difference, not necessarily in my own department, but I could feel it across the institution. Um, I could feel myself being tapped more often to step into, into roles where my opinion was valued. Um, I could feel more opportunities to do the kinds of exciting work I'd previously had to do outside of U of T within U of T. I found colleagues like Sean Meikle, the Director of Information Technology Services in U of T Libraries, who was, you know, heading up basically the tech section of U of T Libraries. And, right. you know, that was, that was cool to find another woman who was senior to me and so wise and could mentor me and help me think about my career and leadership from a different perspective. Uh, colleagues like, although she's now left, uh, Suzanne Akbari, who was moving into her role as the Director of the Centre for Medieval Studies, who was an amazing guide and mentor to me for a while there. Deirdre Lynch, who at the time, and again, she has also left, and the departure of some of our female leaders from certain parts of the institution does worry me, but um, you know, we could maybe come back to that at mm-hmm. some point. Um, but there are those two who are, who are mentored and fostered and who do stay. 
Um, but Deirdre Lynch, who was the graduate director in the English department and um, had arrived basically while I'd been away on parental leave, she'd been hired. And, um, and she was another fantastic mentor to me. And they all just, you know, they lifted me up a bit and they helped me see a way forward. And mm. um, these, these um, Mayo Moran at Trinity College, where I'm a fellow, Kelly Hannah Moffat, who was an interim dean, an acting dean, who's now VP, HR and Equity, um, Siobhan Nelson. I'm throwing out names, right? But I, Media and Andrade, I joined the um, Toronto Initiative for Diversity and Equity, which is the, wow. um, the initiative um, that Medianne and Brian Gansler, so it's not just female leaders, right? It's also male allies. Mm-hmm. That initiative was about um, trying to counter implicit bias in the academic hiring process. And faculty were invited to join and become trainers to train other faculty and how to counter their own biases, not just around gender, but also around race, sexuality, gen- uh, genders, not just male, female, but other genders, orientation, mm-hmm. all of those things. So there were all these people suddenly who were doing this kind of work that I'd always cared about so much, but just hadn't been able to sort of get a, get a grip on previously. That's why I'm here now, right? Because of those people. I want to throw out those names. Um, I, want those, I, want to, I want to sing those names and say thank you to those people. Nobody ends up where I am today unless they've been carried there by other people. And that's what happened to me. And hmm. I'm so grateful to them, but I now know it's my job right, to do the same thing, to turn around and, and look around and see who, who else, you know, not, not exactly around me has not been able to move forward themselves, has not seen a way forward. Now it's my job to say, hey, this, this is the way forward. You know, you, you see obstacles, let me, let me show you a, a path forward and actually make those, those pathways much wider and easier. Um, so anyway, there's my speech <laughs> about, about all the people I owe this position to. So it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy and helping bring more people into it to get them to introspect into how to contribute to the world in a way. It is a virtuous circle, right? Someone, you know, and it, it, starts, with, um, it starts with one or two, one or two extraordinary leaders um, and one or two make all the difference because they bring people in who bring people in who bring people in. And, mm-hmm. um, and we owe where we are to the extraordinary labor of, of those who come before us, um, many of whom are unsung, extraordinary labor of, of women, of so many women of color, of indigenous women, of black women, of allies, you know, who, who come before us. And, uh, and I really mm-hmm. do want to acknowledge them. And I love that you say that because the idea of you can't be what you can't see is something that has been kind of running through our minds as well. Just this idea of it, if we don't see representation, it becomes a little bit harder for us to imagine ourselves stepping into those roles um and then i'd like to come back to this idea of um being called bossy um when you show leadership capability <laughs> i think that's something both yasmin and i can relate to um and it often yes. comes across as a, like a negative um kind of connotation to it and one thing that we've noticed as well is like this idea that if you show too much ambition you're told to tone it down a little bit or if you if you have confidence it's like people want women to be confident, but then when we kind of step into our power, it's like, oh no, we, we don't want that much. Can you take it down a notch? And I, I'm curious if you've had any of those experiences as you've progressed in your career, even now holding a very senior leadership position, how you kind of balance that to lead authentically and with empathy while also fully acknowledging the, and like the power and stepping into your role fully. Yeah, of course I have. Uh, you know, I've had people take me out to lunch when I first arrived at U of T to tell me that I needed to stop talking so much in meetings. Um, but, you know, then I had other people take me out to lunch and tell me, you know, just be who you are. Like, who you are is good. Double down on who you are. Like, just be yourself. I, um, I, I was really lucky because um, my parents took a decision when I was 12 to move me out of a co-ed schooling system into a single-sex schooling system. And for me, I don't think that's great for everybody. And I'm, you know, I worry about the implications of, to be fair, this was the 80s, but nonetheless, I worry <laughs> about the implications for society. This was the 80s in New Zealand as well, not Canada. But um, the implications for society of the necessity of separating girls from boys so that um, girls, and indeed the, the binarism of that, right, um, what that does for people who are gender creative or gender fluid, I mean, whatever. But um, nonetheless, for me, that turned out to be good because in that environment, 
um, a, a girl who is a leader is just a girl who is a leader. There will be girls who are leaders in that environment. And my school was, um, was certainly fostered those kinds of traits and characteristics. So I came out of the school system thinking that it was, it was okay to have those characteristics. But then, yeah, sure, as soon as I, I got into the, um, not so much as an undergraduate, where I actually felt in New Zealand a lot of that was rewarded, but pretty much as soon as I hit graduate school, first in Oxford, and then as I moved into, and then Cambridge, and then U of T, there was a lot of, yeah, like, we want you to succeed, but could you just tone it down a notch? And, you, you know, you do wonder, you think, maybe I should tone it down a notch. Am I being too loud? Am I, have I got it wrong? And I, I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, for, in my case, learning it wasn't actually entirely about gender. I think that some of it is that um, the New Zealand, you know, I come from a different country. The New Zealand way mm-hmm. of being in the world is different from the English way of being in the world, whatever that is. I mean, these ways of being in the world are really diverse anyway, right? Like there's not one way of being a New Zealander, nor one way of being English uh, or British, nor one way of being a Canadian. The very idea of that is offensive, right? Nonetheless, um, the range of ways of being in the world are different in each of those spaces. Mm. And I would say that there was a kind of directness to my mode of communication, which didn't always quite work in this environment. And um, it was useful for me to, to see how that looked through other people's eyes. But I also had to learn to take it with a grain of salt because I had to learn that, you know, there was a kind of directness that was allowable from my male colleagues that was clearly not allowed from me. Um, and that mm. it was actually, when I looked around, much, much worse for my colleagues of colour, for my, my racialized colleagues than it was for me. So, you know, I was not allowed a certain kind of, loudness I was asked to be quieter and they would and even even more quietness was demanded from Mm -hmm. them it was infuriating to see and you know it was one of the things that motivated me to want to eventually when I could see that way forward to move into a leadership role because I want to make sure that as a leader I encourage everybody to be just as loud as they want to be you know I I I like the I, I like noisiness um I don't it's, you know, it can be a challenge as a leader when there's someone who's really mad at you and is telling you in no uncertain terms what they think. But that's how you, that's how you learn. Um, you might not agree, but as you hear an idea that's different from yours, you, you, you test and, and, um, and improve your own idea, even if your idea doesn't completely change. Or you find mm-hmm. out what's wrong with your idea and your idea does change. And that's the sign of of a, of a supple, flexible, you know, frankly worthwhile mind is the ability to change your mind as better ideas or new ideas or new information, new data comes along. So I think, you know, I read some, some meme on social media. It's terrible that you should, one should live one's life via memes on social media, but nonetheless, (laughs) six months or no, it was a couple of years ago, actually, it said, you know, an institution should be most afraid when its loudest voices suddenly go silent, right? Which sounds a little mm-hmm. bit like something from mm-hmm. Star Wars, actually, but that, that scene sounds, <laughs> I, heard, I heard a million voices cry out. It suddenly goes, anyway, it's not that. What it's saying is that when people just give up, when people just stop coming to your meetings and shouting at you, when people are just really polite to you all the time, that's actually a bad sign. Um, mm-hmm. It's a sign that you're not, um, you're not asking the right people, you're not opening up a space where it's safe or easy for people to tell you what they really think. You need that and you need everybody to feel safe to do that, everybody to feel like they can do that without being told, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to hear the protests of a woman, that voice is too shrill. You know, I don't want to hear the protests of someone black, that voice is too angry. You know, you you cannot do that. You will lose so, so much. Even even if you leave aside the the question of the injustice of that, think of the the knowledge, the the ideas, all the goodness that you lose when you shut those voices down um, Mm -hmm. in your community. So anyway, that's the thing I feel very passionately about, opening up space for real communication. For us as students is, we think that as you progress in your career, it, it gets easier to, to handle things like being talked over in meetings or being called out for being bossy or ambitious or loud. And I think 
for us to see that it's something that we will have to prepare ourselves, I guess, to power through and, and brave as we advance in our careers is an important like message to send out to our listeners as well, because as we progress, like we expect that we're stepping into leadership, we'll get more respect and, and people will take us more seriously. But I'm curious, how have you felt that as you've moved up, has that changed? Um, when was it that you kind of realized that people were were listening and were okay with you taking up the space that you are entitled to, to take up? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I have to say, I mean, we're in a pandemic. And so um, the space I take up right now is usually in like, right now I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> I, don't, I don't take space up in other people's space in here since I became a vice president and principal. So it's an interesting question because I wonder how different it will be when we're back taking up space in an embodied as opposed to a virtual way. Because I would say that um, certainly um, I have noticed uh, uh, people take the title vice president and principal very seriously and mm. I take it very seriously too. It's an enormous privilege and um, and a great responsibility. A huge amount of trust has been placed in me. I um, would say that right up until you know, and, and I'm only just in the role, um, and you know, we will see. But I would say that right up until I stepped into this role, did I still have to deal with things like sexual harassment on the job, being talked over, being shouted mm-hmm. at um, uh, by um, by colleagues who uh, you know who were not just being civil in the workplace and um, those colleagues were, in my experience, those colleagues have always been men. They've always been men who are white and senior to me in every case. Uh, Yeah, that was completely the norm for me right up until now. Um, So unfortunately, but let me say a couple of things about that. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even say those people were particularly in the minority. Um, I would say that that kind of incivility and aggression and that kind of um, deliberate diminishment uh, was reasonably consistent through my career. I mean, it, it's certainly not everyone, fantastic colleagues who are white men who have mentored me and propelled me forward all the way through as well, of course. But still, there's been this kind of consistent pattern as well of, you know, of, of a kind of feeling held back by these kinds of behaviours. And mm-hmm. they do hold you back because they, they're a kind of violence, right? They're a kind of damage that's done. Um, maybe I, I think probably unconsciously, but still unconscious doesn't mean not systematic, right? Um, mm-hmm. s- systematic, course. albeit unconsciously. Um, and um, so that's, that's a negative thing that, to say that. But let me say a couple of things that are more positive. One is um, we're talking about this stuff much, much more now. Like I, I wouldn't have been, mm-hmm. co- well, um, maybe if it weren't for all those people I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, including amazing um, white male allies like Brian Gansler, I think um, two of uh, my colleague Bob Gibbs, who was an enormous mentor to me when he was the director of the Jackman Humanities Institute and gave me Mm -hmm. a fantastic leadership role as director of the Digital Humanities Network. Had I had not had that role, I would not be where I am now. Like, you know, there are these people who've who've really Mm -hmm. helped along the way. So here we are, these people who, who are aware of this and we're in this position we're not only talking about it, which makes a big difference. It makes it easier to call out when you see that behavior. It makes it easier to take action. Um, I can, there are structures in place like our sexual violence office and the policies that have been put in place just in the last few years, partly thanks to Premier Kathleen Wynne, partly thanks to the actions of a number of leaders at the University of Toronto that make Mm -hmm. it that much easier to say, not just, you know, this bad thing happened to me, this person did this to me, but this whole workplace, this whole situation is not, is, not, is not acceptable and it's doing damage to people. Of course. Let's see if we can change it. And what I believe is that that is happening more and more. I'm not suggesting that it's perfect or that it's going to be fixed or that by the time you finished being students and have entered, let's hope, the academic workforce, that, mm-hmm. um, that it's going to, going to be gone. But I do hope, I really hope, and certainly I and others are working really hard to this end, that it will be better, um, that it will be much better. Um, I really, really hope that, um, that, that I put a, a lot of us are putting a lot of time into trying to make that the case. So I would say that, um, that that's, the, that's the thing. And the other thing I would say is just, just the action of talking about it, even without all those structures and new leadership and all of those things, just the action of talking about it, I hope, is, 
involves a kind of empowerment that makes it harder for those behaviours to be acceptable. Um, it is it is harder if folks are talking about it. When I was young, you know, really right up until the last few years, this stuff was constant and no one talked about it. It was just like, well, this is just what you put up with. This is just normal. Um, it was so normal that there were ways in which I'd internalised it and it took me a number of years to realise that it wasn't that it wasn't acceptable, that, that actually it was taking a real toll on me and that, um, and that it was affecting things like my decisions to um, how, how, decisions about how my career would play out and so on. And um, so I, yes, do be prepared. It doesn't go away. But mm-hmm. don't, put, don't put up with it and know that it is the work of the people ahead of you to, to fix this and expect that and demand it. In other words, don't think it's your work to make it go away. It's actually the work of those of us who have the privilege um, and the responsibility of having stepped into these kinds of leadership roles to, mm-hmm. to clear that path for you. Right. And I think that's super powerful, this idea of allyship coming not just from other women, but also from men as well. Like, for example, with WISC, our faculty advisor, Michael Liu, who's uh, one of the CS professors at UTM, has been an incredible ally, just giving us the space to share our thoughts and our vision and really validating kind of the things that we want to put forward and and listening. And I think that that in itself is a very empowering kind of move to see as a student come from faculty members who are ready to hear you out and listen and use their position to help advance us as students. And I think this idea of your tribe coming together to to uplift you um, Mm -hmm. is something that's really powerful and, and it's something it's a message that I hope that our listeners take away with them as well, that although we talk about the negative experiences here, it's because we want to acknowledge that, yes, they happen, and we need to use our position to make it, I guess, easier for the next woman that comes after us. Yeah, and one of the things I've learned from that too is to say those, um, those men who, who, who helped, who saw and who heard and who helped were, you know, life change. They, they they changed my life. Like they made things possible mm-hmm. that I didn't think were possible, whether it was those folks out at Stanford or in the Mellon Foundation who just like extended opportunities to me that were not being extended to me elsewhere um, and the same here, or whether it was colleagues who actually took parts of their spare time as faculty members and were like, you know what I'm going to do with my like service time or just frankly my research time I'm going to set up an initiative to get rid of unconscious bias and hiring in, in academia, you know, like mm. things like that and say, well, look, how can I be a better ally too? Because as a white woman um, who's also straight and who's very gender conforming, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a feminine woman. Um, I am married. Mm. I have three children. Um, like, you know, I, I'm a, I'm femme. Um, it's say like, what, what about, my um, queer colleagues what about my um, especially my queer female colleagues what about the lavender ceiling right there's a glass ceiling but there's also a lavender one how many queer female gender non-conforming colleagues can I see around me succeeding moving into leadership positions not very many is the answer to that how many um, colleagues of color how many black and indigenous women black and indigenous men do I see being lifted up being given opportunities and I know how much it meant when people who were not like me turned around and said, I see what is happening to you. Let me help. Um, and they didn't necessarily say it out loud. They just, they just did it. You know, can I be that kind of ally? Um, not, not loudly necessarily, not like, you know, here I am being an ally, just do things, right. Just make opportunities, just help. Um, and so I, tr- I tried to learn from that as well. Um, and again, I think that's really important when you um, move into a leadership role like the one I stepped into. And I'm certainly certainly not perfect at doing these sorts of things yet, but I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. And I think like just as a person who's like still in experience and just the higher academia and just leadership and life experience, like I've only been living for 18 years of my life. The fact that you speak of this just gives me like, I don't know how to explain it, but it just gives me good insight into what to expect in the future and sort of how to persevere against that. So in these situations, what advice would you give to, let's say, young women who want to pursue higher academia or leadership? 
and experience these things because we're mostly naive and we like at least on my end till the beginning of this year I never knew that stuff like this existed (laughs) I just thought that you know what I'm just gonna go in and if I'm experienced everyone will treat me normally and we'll just do what we need to do um well first of all I would say um there is this um there are kind of like two pieces of advice here Mm-hmm. One of them is comes from a colleague of mine called Dan White, who's currently the chair of UTM English and Drama Department, and who actually was one of the people who hired me back in 2003 to the University of Toronto, and who's been a friend and mentor ever since. Mm-hmm. And he used to say when things was, were getting us down, you know, back when we were younger faculty, um, he had a sort of message which was like, go home and do your work. Um, and what that meant was... <laughs> um, there is actually something to be said for that piece, which is um, the, the work, the thing that you love, the life of the mind, the, the passion you have for the subject you know, that you're doing, mm-hmm. whether it's psych or bio or chem or data science or, in my case, like poetry or like whatever it is, go and do it. Like, because that retreat, sometimes, in, sometimes it will be a retreat and it, it's a privilege, right? But yes. it is one that you can, and I and I know it's a privilege that many people block for and from, and I, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but but try to seize that privilege. Don't let anyone do your very best not to let anyone take that away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, let yourself go home and do your work. Do your very best to make that space or to find that space or to take that space and own it. You know, do the work. Um, so I would start by saying that. Don't. In other words, be aware of all these things. And, and again, I'll come back to that in a moment. It's the second half of the advice, right? Um, mm-hmm. Be aware of all of these things, but also be aware of the, the great importance of claiming. I mean, you talked about um, like how long did it, you know, how, how long was it before people let me take up the space that I should be allowed to take up? I'm like, on some mm-hmm. level, like take up the space, do your work, do the work you want to do, do that. Right, so I'll say that as if it's just really easy. <laughs> then then I'll acknowledge it's not really easy and it's differently hard for different people in different ways, right? Yeah. It's, um, right. you know, it, it's hard, you know, it's been hard for me in certain ways because I'm a woman. It's a lot harder for a lot of people um, than it was for me. So let me acknowledge that and say, okay, so given that it's hard, on the one hand, like you've got to make that space to, to, to do what you love, to do what excites you and you're interested, to follow your ambitions and your goals. How are you going to do it if it's harder for you than it is for this person over here? Um, mm-hmm. Well, you said some of the things that you need to do. You need to find your tribe. You need to find your people um, because they will they will carry you. You need to be loud about what you need and and you need to talk about these things. You need. And, I mean, you're doing that, right? Like we're sitting here having this podcast. Mm-hmm. You need to. Right. You need to talk to the people who are in positions mm-hmm. of authority who can make the way clearer for you. You need to speak about these things, I think. You, you know, you need your voices to be heard and the, the best way is to um, is to speak. You have to hope that, because um, it shouldn't always be your work, right? It needs to be our work. It needs to be the work of those who have the power and have the privilege. There, there, there it has to just be hope, right? Because that's that's our work, right? Um, but I, I do, I'm an, I'm an eternal optimist, which is probably... It's probably a, it's probably a failing, but anyway, I am. I do believe that that work is happening more and more, so I feel good about that. Um, a little bit good about that on the day on good on good days. I feel good about that. <laughs> you uh, need the duality to it. You know, we can't just be full pessimistic. I think being optimistic yeah. in these days is very helpful. Yeah. Um, so I I think you you do all of those things too. Um, you, you you balance it right. You you say mm-hmm. I. I'm going to claim this space, but I'm going to also acknowledge that I don't get to claim the space in the same way other people do. So I am going to need to take these other steps. Um, and, and so I will, I'll take these other steps. I'll find my people. I'll, I'll speak loudly about what the challenges are. And I will hope that not only does my action help to make it easier, but also that those people are listening and that they will, they will try to make it easier too. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best that you can do. And, so I think that's interesting on the topic of advice. So one of the things that I've struggled with is this idea of when I feel like I'm a representation of like the only, I'm the only woman in a room and mm-hmm. I feel this pressure to perform really well, because if I don't, it'll look badly, not just on me, but on all women. Um, yeah. And 
this idea of you become a representation of yes the people that you I guess kind of fall fall into that group with and this you get this pressure to perform um and it's interesting because I've heard people say that as a woman you don't get credit for being status quo you always need to be innovative and cutting edge and pushing ahead in order to kind of make your voice heard and I feel like it's kind of hard to come into this position where you feel comfortable taking risks when you're in high leadership because there is this immense pressure to perform exceptionally well. Can you talk a little bit about maybe a risk that's paid off for you and a risk that hasn't and how you kind of came back from that experience and even got yourself into the mindset to be willing enough to take risks? That's a really, um, it's a really good question. And it's, it's certainly true that, um, that you feel, um, well, I, I mean, one thing I would say is that, again, I would point to the fact that I'm, although I'm the first female principal at UTM, I'm not the first female VP at U of T. There have been a number before me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at Provost Regeer or Vice President um, Hannah Moffat and so on, and before that Provost Misak, and, you know, they're all, great number of, um, of women who have had these leadership roles before and they have been both I mean they have been outstanding performers for a start I mean there, there is unquestionably a you know there's a there's a thing um, that we do at the end of uh, this is jumping away from those particular people but just thinking about departmental um, activity so professorial activity at the end of the year we do a thing called PTR progress through the ranks where we look at the CVs of or the performance annual activity reports, they're called, of, um, of people in the departments and see what they've done in a given year. And, you know, there are a couple of people um, who, you know, who go through um, and th- their annual activity report is, is so ridiculously ahead of anybody else's that you just, you just don't even really know what to do with it. And I feel like there mm. are women ahead of me who unquestionably have always been like that they've always been doing three times as much as anybody else um, in order to be judged you know as good or you know maybe even just a little bit better um, and so on I I, I can see that um, and it does set up a kind of standard that I sometimes feel I too am being you know measured against Um, I, I do feel that does it but because they are there ahead do I feel do I feel able to take risks Really interesting question. In my academic life, like my academic intellectual life, um, it has been a little bit harder. I, I feel like there, there's less of a, um, so as a medieval scholar and, a, and an English literary scholar, there was definitely a model whereby um, female scholars, uh, there were some, there were a few who, who were kind of big intellectual risk takers, but the model was often that, you know, there were the boys with their big ideas and then there were the women who were, you know, doing yes. really hard work in the archives or something. There was there was something mm-hmm. like that model. And um, I, I did at a certain point in my career try to take a turn away from that. I was like, I just, I don't like this. It feels kind of wrong to me. And I don't think it did pay off. And I think it's actually one of the things that, um, well, maybe it, maybe it did eventually, but it took a really long time for it to pay off. I think it's one of the things that moved me towards admin because I felt like administration management leadership because I felt like there actually was a place I could take bigger risks where I could say, you know what, let's try a really big idea. Let's try restructuring this whole thing over in this space. Um, and that there was more room for me to do that sort of work. I could see women ahead of me who'd come in and said, you know, they were still busy being amazing heavy hitters and doing everything right but in the context of doing everything right they had also said and while I'm doing everything right I'll also do this quite risky thing over here I, I think they are there was there's still a kind of way in which the female leaders I see are often framing the slightly risky thing they're doing with extraordinary box ticking amazing performance at everything else there's certainly no they're not dialing it in anywhere they're you know but that doesn't mean mm. they're not doing really bold exciting things somewhere does that make sense so as I come into this particular role and this was true also as I stepped in as chair or as you know um, director of the digital humanities network or some of the other leadership roles I've taken in the past I actually did feel empowered to say hey let's try this thing that no one's tried before 
um, and see whether see whether it works. I mean, it was not enormously risky because I at mm-hmm. those other previous leadership roles um, were not um, they were not like the one I'm in now, where the stakes are very high. Um, but I um, but I certainly could try new things um, and was was encouraged to do so and. I certainly feel in this position like that's the case too. I mean, I've walked in the middle of a pandemic, right? Everything we're doing is a new thing that we're trying. For example, <laughs> innovation. <laughs> for example, um, we are um, because we're in Peel region, different from um, Toronto, different public health um, public health authority. Uh, we we have to think about testing for COVID nineteen differently from the other two campuses, um, and so. We kind of looked at each other a couple of weeks ago because we were looking at how we're going to um, test our quarantining students. That's become something the federal government and regional health authorities and regional uh, councils are wanting us to do for reasons to do with international students coming in and mm-hmm. wanting to make sure they're COVID-free and that there's no um, spread from an influx of people from other parts of the world or other parts of the country. Perfectly understandable and so on. But we're like, you know what, it's not like downtown where students can just toddle off down to the hospital and get a test it's harder from the utm mm-hmm. campus so we're like we're going to have to do on-site testing you heard it first here we are going to have to do on-site testing and so we looked mm-hmm. at each other and we're like okay we're going to do it let's do on-site testing and then we looked at each other and we're like you know what if we're going to do on-site testing let's think about and i'm not by the way on this podcast committing to our doing this it's just a twinkle in our <laughs> eye right now but let's start a t- let's think about whether we could if we can get approval if we can get funding, you know, and so on, attaching some research projects to that on-site mm-hmm. testing, especially yeah. around, um, we're really interested in saliva testing. So the I don't know if you've had a COVID test, but they're horrible. Oh, I shouldn't perhaps say that. Everyone should get one, though, if you've got any symptoms. God. You know what? They're not great, but I got one and... I would get one every day if I had to, to protect the people I love. There you go. And you should all do the same. There you go. Um, So you don't have to edit that out. Um, So they're not that great. um, And they're very um, high touch. They're very intensive, um, right? You have to have um, someone who's trained to take them. The saliva tests that are increasingly being approved uh, globally are um, uh, things you can actually um, do to yourself um, or you spit in a cup, which doesn't necessarily require someone nearly as trained. You don't have to necessarily have a trained nurse and so on to take these kinds of tests. So you massively reduce the cost and the pressure on the health system to take them. So anyway, we're really excited about the idea we could maybe at UTM start running some um, some pilot saliva testing as the Ministry of Health, the Federal Ministry of Health, starts approving these tests. And I'm like, let's do it. Let's just do it. Um, you know, we'll be sending the samples off to labs to get tested, mm-hmm. but we think it would be really fun. Those are the kinds of, I mean, that would, it's not exact, it's not super crazy risky, but, um, but that idea that here we are at UTM, um, we have amazing people here, amazing staff, amazing faculty, people full of ideas. Let's try some of them. Let's do some new exciting things. I do feel empowered to do that. And I partly feel empowered because I can see female leaders around me and before me who have done the same kind of thing. Right. And I love that you have sort of that duality of your workplace culture where you're like pushing a lot of things societally and you're working in a university, but you're also a parent as well. So how do you find that sort of dynamic works with each other? Because I know like as a woman personally in the future, I feel like we have to think our future more so than males would just because we do have that, you know, quote unquote biological clock and we have to make sure that whatever career we have, if we want to have children, that we can also support them as well. So I don't know. I just wanted to pick your brain. How do you find those two dynamics fitting into your life? And of course, like the gender typing that comes with parenting as well. Yeah. Well, one one thought I have is that, you know, equity is going to require that, um, that people who identify as male um, or those who are able to quote-unquote father children as opposed to mother children increasingly Mm -hmm. that that's a complicated thing because of um, the way that gender is a richer idea than it used to be but nonetheless those are able to father children um, that they too have a biological clock and that this will impinge on their career and that they too have to think about it as I did you know I was thinking about that by the age of about 16 I don't know about you folks but um, like I was like hmm I want a career How is that going to, you know, not like in a really super conscious way, but just in a sort of, well, I don't think I want to be a lawyer because as far as I can tell, 
like women who want to be lawyers and then want to have kids just like leave the law. That's what I was seeing, right? I, I, I mean, whether that was true yeah. or not, but that's what I perceived at the age of 16 in like 1980 something. And uh, I actually think it was like 1990 almost exactly. Um, and, um, and, you know, like I was trying to see like what was a career that I could have where children fit. And I really, I was having trouble seeing that. And I'm sure it's one of the reasons that I oriented towards academia and one of the reasons I oriented mm-hmm. towards the humanities because I could sort of see that, that there was a safe space there for kind of parenting and like women were actually in that field and like all these things, which was not true of STEM to the same extent. Even though I had an aunt in STEM, I still couldn't really. I mean, just the way people talked about women in right, STEM. The the way, yeah, the way, other, the way people talked about women in the professions and in STEM was so misogynist and so sexualized when I was just like yeah obviously I don't belong there so I guess it'll be the humanities for me anyway so that was the direction I went um we need what well, we need that to go away but we also need it to be the case that it's not only women who are thinking about how am I going to fit parenting in but before there'll be equity around that so that's a thought I have second thing I'll say is that um for me the the having kids thing has just been it, it's actually been like the best career decision I ever made um, which, which is a bit counterintuitive, um, mm-hmm. but it, um, it's made me a more chilled out person. It's made me a more, I'm better at managing my time. I'm better at, it's improved my, my empathy. It's improved my sort of emotional intelligence. I read people better. I think I understand mm-hmm. people's, mm-hmm. I understand people's needs better. I think, cause I got better at reading, needs like this one things you have to do as a parent is read the needs of someone when they're hungry or tired I can recognize that my colleagues now I'm like oh you're shouting because you're tired (laughs) (laughs) sounds patronizing right but actually people you know quite often behave particularly badly in meetings at the end of the day and it's because they're tired but anyway give them more coffee um so no but like I, I just feel like I became I just feel like I became, uh, in my case, this is not true for everybody, of course, but in my case, I became a, um, I just frankly became a better human being, um, a, a less strung out, less less, um, less stressed out human being. I sort of realized I couldn't control everything. I couldn't control the other human beings around me. They would just be who they were. And uh, I just had to meet them where they were, whether they were a three-month-old or my you know, senior colleague in another department. And I learned how to do that better. So that was great for me. The other thing is that I have never experienced, um, well, maybe this is not true. I'm probably overplating my case or protesting too much. I probably have experienced this guilt, but I have chosen to beat it down inside myself. Um, hmm. the, guilt, the guilt of thinking that somehow it was wrong for me to lean on my spouse, to, um, to throw the bank, as someone told me to, at home help. So I hired nannies from very early on. Um, I, you know, we, we have chosen to put a lot of our, and we're really lucky because we have two incomes, um, my spouse and I, and, Mm. um, by the time I had kids, I was tenured. So I wasn't precarious, right. I have so many advantages and I, again, want to recognize my check, my privilege, right. Like lots of things here, but I was able to hire help and I did it. I hired cleaners, nannies, you know, like wherever I could get help, I just took it and I, I, I didn't look at myself and think I am a worse parent for doing that or I'm a worse mom for doing that because the mom should always be there. I was like, no, a parent should always be there and a caregiver should always be there. And my kids should always know that I love them more than anything in the whole world and that they are mm. amazing humans and I love being with them and all those things. But Aww. you know, if someone else is changing their diaper, that's okay. Um, and because I'm like doing the footnotes on this article I want to get out, that's okay. And you know what? It has been okay. I mean, you know, you can ask them again when they're 18 and in therapy, but my guess is that even if I'd been with them changing their diaper, they'd still be in therapy at 18 because life's hard. So, mm-hmm. and also I'm a big believer in therapy. So, you know, mm-hmm. therapy's great. <laughs> I'm always in therapy. Um, I love therapy. So I'll be strongly encouraging their therapy. <laughs> so anyway, the, the point is just I, I try really hard not to feel that guilt and, and my spouse and I really, and again, I'm very privileged and lucky to have this, the arrangement where this is possible, but my spouse and I really do share the load 50-50, if anything, not at the moment, but most of the time he's sharing a little bit, he's doing a little bit more, I would say, of the primary mm-hmm. caregiving. 
And, um, yeah, so I've just um, – I guess one of the messages I'd like to get out is that is possible because as I was coming up through, the, nobody told me that was possible. Like, I, right. you know, nobody mm-hmm. – everybody told me I'd feel guilty and it would be terrible and I'd, I'd be squirting breast milk all over my face in the middle of meetings and it just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it was, like, really full on. But um, – you know, as a result, now in the middle, you know, the pandemic comes along and I'm stepping into this new role and everyone's like, are you really stressed? And I'm like, seriously, I've had premature twins and a toddler. Um, no, of course I'm not stressed. This is nothing. <laughs> you know, bring, you know, bring, bring it on. <laughs> so, um, no, it's a fantastic preparation for whatever life can throw at you. Of course. And if it brings you like any sense of closure, my parents did the same thing. When I was younger, they were really busy and traveling. So I was pretty much brought up with nannies. And I don't think, at least I think I developed normally. And and instead, like when I would meet my parents or just after days of work, it would be like a much, I guess, richer experience because I wasn't, I don't know how to say this, but I wouldn't take them as much for granted. And it would be a very like rich experience, if that makes sense. Like I would... Mm be more connected to my parents than I think I other would otherwise would be had I been habituated to them if that makes sense I am I try really hard to do things like um, a privilege of my of an administrative job in a way that perhaps wouldn't be true if I were more in the teaching research part of my career right that I really can stop at a certain point of the night like I'm still on myself I'm still on my iPhone right like taking emails and texts and you know, and so on. But I really do stop at sort of 6.30 and I spend the whole evening with them. We cook together, we hang That's out, awesome. we talk, you know, all those things. And right. um, and I also really do take weekends with them. Um, I'm not right now, but normally, you know, we just spent, today we were going around, at the moment we're doing lots of um, estate sale shopping because I've moved into Lylehurst, mm-hmm. which is like old, like old heritage house on the on UTM grounds. And um it, it is basically when we arrived it was basically unfurnished and so we're slowly filling it up with furniture which we're buying I'm, I'm the kind of, I don't like buying I don't like buying things new because it's bad for the environment and I also just don't like spending money um mm. so um, <laughs> so I just bought this chair which I'm looking at right now for seven dollars it's really nice antique and it was seven dollars wow. hooray um anyway so we had to drive to Hamilton to get that chair so we all went off together and then we went to like Donut Monster in Hamilton which is amazing it's so crazy. fun so good and so we do things like that and then also I try to take off as much of August as I can and we have this cottage we rent and I spend that whole time just hiking swimming canoeing like and that's just 24 7 um you know fires you know s'mores the works so there's real and we also go back to New Zealand um as much as we can in December most years not this year probably unless Jacinda Ardern, if you're listening, please decide to <laughs> let us come back and not quarantine. I promise we don't have COVID. No, they won't let us in, and that's fair enough. Um, but we go back, and again, I try to take that time and spend it with my family there and my kids, and we go to all these New Zealand beaches, and we like do forest walks, and it's just brilliant. It. Yeah. So that's what I hope they will remember um, is those moments. Uh, and, and um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, but again, you can hear the, let me just say, I can hear the privilege that I have sort of rippling through mm-hmm. those statements, right? Going to cottage, flying to this country, nannies, you know, th- th- there's a lot of, um, there's money behind those statements. Um, and there's, um, there's edu- you know, there's, there's all sorts of things. There's just a lot of privilege. And so right. I want to acknowledge that not everybody has those options and choices and, and that parenting and working and, you know, and when you get to have your kids and, how that works in with your career and how it plays out with a spouse or not, or not a spouse or whatever, you know, whether, you know, even simple things like whether you're in a kind of heteronormative relationship, right. All of these things change those dynamics and make Mm -hmm. them tougher. And, and it's also one of my jobs as principal and, and VP to think about those as obstacles um, as well as opportunities for people in our community, students, as well as, um, faculty staff and librarians and how do we make sure we realize their potential when they're also parenting how do we how do we mm-hmm. help them and we have a few things we're doing like um, faculty who are researchers um, who are parenting very small children can access a fund which means they can take their um, especially those who are nursing 
So um, those of either gender who are, um, who are nursing babies are able to um, take their babies with them to conferences and maybe take a caregiver with them to help them with that, which I didn't have when I was nursing my kids. And I can tell mm-hmm. you, yeah. pumping breast milk while crouched on a toilet at a conference using a like portable, yeah, that, that actually was like the sitcoms about working moms and that wasn't so great. <laughs> I, did, I did not enjoy that so much. Wow. I mean, like, I just... All of this is so it's I don't know, it's it's a roller coaster to, to sort of live vicariously through you. And just to be mindful of time, I think we just like to thank you so much for coming on this podcast and just teaching us so much in such a little, you know, short period of time and goes to show how conversations really can just be extremely powerful. And I guess the last thing that I, I mean, wanted to ask you was, do you have any advice for any students that that might hear this or anything like that? Well, I guess I'd say um, that the kind of students who sit down and put on their um, headphones and listen to podcasts like this are, you know, they're amazing. Well, this is going to sound like I think people who listen to me are amazing. I don't mean that. I mean, people who listen to Yasmin and Venise are amazing, you know, are smart and are thinking cleverly because this is an amazing podcast. And um, it's not about me. But, uh, you know, are fantastic. They're the bright hope of our future. And, you know, we're, um, this is a pretty extraordinary time. Right now, like Northern California and, and the Northwest is on fire. We're in yeah. the middle of a pandemic. We've got incredible social injustice that's erupting, particularly around fault lines of race and, um, and other kinds of injustice of particular marginalized communities. Like the world looks... Um, doesn't look um, easy right now. We're in the moment of extraordinary transition. I am an eternal optimist, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I believe that these kinds of moments of um, change, which come every now and then, um, can lead um, when they're in the hands of amazing young people like you two and the people who listen to your podcast to really, really good things for the world, Uh, not just, you know, the seeming disasters that we sometimes see around us. Um, so my message is um, one of hope, right? Um, I sound like a politician now, but um, I'm not a politician. I, admit, I actually mean it. It's Please not don't. just a slogan. <laughs> I really mean it. I want people to stay hopeful. I want people to believe that it's possible for us to move from this moment to a world that is more just, um, where we live in better harmony with the natural world, which we've got to do. We just have to do that. I actually believe that living in better harmony with the natural world will involve more justice. And um, and I believe that it's you folks, you young folks, who are going to take us there. So I wish you all the best of luck. And, um, and, I, and I also just remember to be kind to one another and hold one another up. That is how you will overcome the obstacles I've talked about. Um, that is why I've ended up where I am because other people carried me here. And so, you know, mm-hmm. carry one another. That's what you need to do. Love that. There's so many powerful messages. Thank you so much, Alex. We're so excited to have you leading the charge at UTM for the next few years. And we're excited to see where your term takes you. And, and we're here to support it. And we're so thrilled that you sat down with us today to have a conversation. Thank you. It was an enormous um, pleasure and privilege. And um, I really hope that one day, sometime soon, we get to meet face to face. Won't that be fun? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you can oh, come and that. come to the first event. I'll try to make sure I remember to invite you to the first event we have here at Lylehurst. Maybe by then I'll have more $7 chairs. <laughs> wow. Looking right. forward to it. Wow. That's a, that's a very big incentive. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just, I promise I to clean them. <laughs> we can right. help you clean them. <laughs> that's enough. Okay. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for inviting me. Sounds good. Do you have any social plugins that you want to plug? Maybe your Twitter or something? We oh can yeah. I'm at Alex. I'm at Alex Gillespie on Twitter. Um, I I should do Instagram, but I'm just really old. So I just tweet. So it's a mindset. Age is a mindset. Okay. I, I like your attitude. One, one day, maybe I'll go on to Instagram. The embarrassing <laughs> reality is that I'm on Facebook where I have like 1,100 friends. I know. Wow. Once wow. Oh my I know. God. Fr- friends in That's inverted amazing. commas. Well, yeah, it sounds amazing, <laughs> right? But then now I can't leave Facebook because of those people. They're my people. Um, so, and I can't start Instagram where I have like three friends. So, mm. you know, but no, you have to, you know, 
don't don't come and try and find me on Facebook. But you can see me on Twitter. I definitely tweet. So okay. at, at Alex Gillespie. All right, we'll link it in the description as well. So okay. I'd just like to thank you again, Alex, for coming on. And we will see you guys next time on this podcast. Bye. Okay. Take care.